The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Um, we've got, uh, I know, a couple of Social Security questions to start with, and then this being one of the final shows in June that we are recording, uh, we're going to continue to to uh, not, not solely annuity questions, but uh, we're going to uh, lean heavily on annuity questions that have been submitted by our listeners because June is, in fact, uh, National Annuity Awareness Month. So uh, we've got another show, or I guess we've got one more Q&A show, actually, that will uh, fall in, although um, we'll record it in June, but it'll play the first day of July. So I don't know, we'll have to ask Jim here in a moment if he wants to do next week's show as an uh, annuity-heavy show as well, uh, even though it'll play in... July. We might be breaking some sort of rule there. I don't know. So thanks a lot for uh, joining us today. If you want to send in your own questions uh, to the show, we do appreciate that. And you should send them directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. That's jimhelps.com. Make sure in the uh, uh, subject line you indicate that it's a question for the podcast. And particularly if you're trying to squeeze a question in uh, during Annuity Awareness Month about annuities, uh, include that fact in the subject line as well. So I'll bring Jim in so we can (laughs) dive right in. We've got somewhat limited time. This won't be a, this will be a more of a, an hour and five minute show maybe or so instead of a, last one did was over an hour and a half. That got a little out of control, but um, I know Jim's got a, a deadline today, so we won't be able to go extra long today. So I think that's why you chose this morning to tell me, "Hey, we're going to record at nine fifteen in the morning," because you knew I had a ten thirty. So well, that was we're squeezing it in, and then uh, you've got something, and then I've got something, and I was worried that the day would get away from us, and we'd have trouble getting to it this afternoon. So I, I know, but I'm on to you. I'm like, Ooh, look at that little sneaky guy. He's going to go limit me to an hour. <laughs> oh, the <Okay>. horror. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to start as we always do with social security questions, folks, because social security is a form of an annuity. And we just always lead with self uh, social security questions. It seems uh, anyways, all right, so the first one, we got two. They're kind of easy. You, you've addressed similar ones to this, but they seem to still uh, get mm-hmm. sent to us more questions. Um, this trivia question stumped me. I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave the answer, so it, it was good. I didn't have to Google it. But he lives in, I guess you could say, the colony that became the first state. Hmm. So you got one out of 13, if you understand the 13 yeah, colonies. No, I get... Which one became a state first? Hmm. I think it could be a few. Well, it could be any of 13, I guess, but uh, um, no other little tidbit hint? Um, 
Well, I could give a wicked easy hint. Well, no, I don't want Actually, to. no, no, no. That wouldn't be overly easy. No, no. Um, I don't think, I'm thinking in my head real quick, but I don't think the state has any national sports teams. Oh. I could be wrong on that, but I'm thinking. Well, that. Yeah, I don't think they have any. I'm thinking in my head, at least of the big four, hockey, basketball, baseball, right. football. Well, that narrows it down, certainly. That does um, narrow it down. Um, let's go. I remember, I only have an hour. Yeah, let's so. go with Delaware. Let's go with Delaware. Yes. The, that's what I always think gave of. it away? One of the, one of the, well, it helped me because I was kind of waffling between maybe Pennsylvania or something like well, that. Well, Pennsylvania but, has plenty of national sports. They get the that's Steelers. why I said... That's helped me narrow it down after you said that because oh. I was waffling there and that eliminated Pennsylvania, New York, you know, a lot of those. So Okay. Yeah, I don't think Delaware has a national sports team. I don't, sports team, I don't so that think so either. Thing, I didn't know they were the first state ever. I figured it would have been Massachusetts or Pennsylvania because uh, Philadelphia mm-hmm. and Boston were huge. And I don't know. Anyways, just yeah, learn something I think new. I, I, yeah. I'm not that shocked, but I was—I didn't know it for sure that your your little okay. extra hint helped me. So let's—we're burning my time. Let's True. get on okay. this. Okay, <laughs> go for it. Geez, you got to be pithy like me. It <laughs> says, "Thank you, Chris and Jim, for all." Actually, thank you, Chris. For, there's no damn Jim in this. Oh, that's that's. I'm surprised the question well, made it onto the show. Right. Then <laughs> we're going to skip and go straight to question number two. I just noticed there's no, no gym in there. If it's a social security question, that's probably why they. True. All right. Yeah. I'll give him leeway on that. Okay. But it should be thank you, Chris, for all you do. And thank you, Jim, for. For reading the questions to Chris. For reading the question security. to Chris. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Chris, for all you do. Really love the podcast and appreciate all the info you share. We have a few years before I retire. And I was wondering if my wife takes her Social Security at 62 and I wait to 67 or maybe 70, can she switch to the spousal benefit amount, which should be higher, or would she be negatively impacted because she took hers early at 62? Now, you've addressed that part of these questions many times, but you can rehash that yet again. My other question If I pass before I start my Social Security, can my wife wait till I was supposed to have turned 67 and then switch to the spousal amount? Or does she have to start the spousal amount amount at the date of death, which could be earlier than 67? I think what he's asking there is, are they going to force her to claim at the date he died and not wait Um, And then we are trying to maximize what we get from Social Security since she is eligible for payments, um, even though her full retirement age is only about, oh, she's only getting half. That's what he's saying here. Mm -hmm. Even though she's only getting half of mine. Thank you for your help. Gives his real name, but we will call him George from Delaware. Okay. So two questions in one. The first question, pretty straightforward. Um, although commonly um, misunderstood. And that is the fact that when you, uh, the wife in this case, has eligibility for her own benefits, but also uh, potential eligibility for a spousal benefit once her husband, in this case, uh, were to claim, uh, those are interconnected. Uh, Your own benefit and any potential spousal benefit are looked at together. And what that means is if she were to claim early at 62, she definitely uh, would receive a reduced amount compared to her claiming at her full retirement age. Um, But he's saying, what if she starts with that and then switches later? Well, if she switches later, which by switch essentially means once he claims, which is the trigger for her having eligibility for that spousal benefit, they will then add to her own benefit what's called the spousal offset. The spousal offset is how much the spousal benefit would be from his record minus what her benefit would have been at her full retirement age 
that's the difference. So maybe her her benefit was eight hundred dollars, and half of his was a thousand. Just to make the numbers uh, simple, half of his PIA was a thousand. So her spousal offset is two hundred dollars. Well, if she claims early, that eight hundred is going to be reduced. Her own benefit will be reduced by let's let's she didn't give me you know he didn't give me age of, uh, or date of birth or anything on here, but let's assume she was born nineteen sixty. Uh, so her full retirement age for her own benefit would be 67. She, if she claims at 62, it'll be 30% less. So she'll get 30% less than that $800, which is $240 off. So she'd get uh, $560 instead of 800 Then when she gets to, um, you know, later on he claims, unlocking the door to the spousal, they're only going to pay her that $200 spousal offset that I had identified. So that'll only top her up to... 760 bucks instead of a thousand, which is what she would have gotten if she would have waited and claimed her own and spousal benefit at her full retirement age or later. So yes, there's permanent damage done to your spousal benefit if you claim your own benefit early. The second part of his question is, what if he dies before claiming? Uh, maybe he was planning to wait till 70. He said that was a consideration. And what that does is that will maximize the uh, benefit he would receive and thus maximize the survivor benefit available to her, to the wife. And he calls it a spousal benefit, switching to a spousal benefit, but it's not. That's a survivor benefit or sometimes called a widow's benefit. And they are different under different rules than the spousal benefit. The spousal benefit is kind of tied up along with your own retirement benefit uh, and can have the effects that I just described a moment ago. The survivor benefit is its own standalone benefit. And um, how much you're going to get is going to be determined by two things. First, what your spouse was collecting or would have collected had they claimed right before they died. So he's talking about a situation where he passes away before claiming. Whatever his benefit would be on the day of his death becomes the potential survivor benefit. She will get 100% of that if, the second part of the qualification, if she has reached her own full retirement age before claiming it. So his base question was, will they force her to switch when he dies? No. She can wait. Now, she would not wait until older than her full retirement age because there's no benefit to doing so. But if he were to pass away before she reaches her full retirement age, she might want to collect, continue collecting her own so that she doesn't permanently damage the survivor benefit. Because uh, if she takes that before her full retirement age, if she switches over to it because he's passed away young, she will permanently have a reduced survivor benefit. And if she wants to avoid that, she can simply just continue collecting her own until she gets to her full retirement age and then switch. There's no mandatory switch required. The other thing I'll point out is we are in an era right now where there's a lot of people that have two different ages, full retirement ages, for their own benefit and spousal, those are tied together, versus the survivor benefit. Little known fact is those people born between 19, you know, before 1955 have a full retirement age benefit or full retirement age for spousal and retirement benefits of 66. Then those be born between 1955 and 1960 are in that transition period where each year they raised the full retirement age two months. So somebody born in 1955 is 66 and two months, then 66 and four, all the way up to 1960 birth years where you're 67 full retirement age. Well, that transition from 66 to 67 for retire or for survivor benefits starts two years later, strangely enough. So if you were born in 1957, for instance, not only would your full retirement age for uh, retirement and spousal benefits be 66 and six months, your full retirement age for survivor benefits is only 66 and two months. So be aware that there is this potential up to four month difference between those two until you get to 1962 and then everything's back in line with one another and 67 is the full retirement age for both spousal retirement combined and survivor benefits. So I did want to point that out because based on the ages we're talking about here, they might fall into that weird situation where her full retirement age 
for survivor benefits may not be what you think it is. She actually might reach her full retirement age for survivor benefits faster than she got to the full retirement age for her own and spousal benefits. So I spoke as quickly as I could to save time, Jim, but I had to get all that in to adequately cover his question. You had a lot to get in there. I had I will, a lot to squeeze in. I will concede in. that. Yeah. I will concede that. You robbed some of my hour. But Sorry. Yes, you, you, had a, <laughs> you had a lot to get into. Okay. Next Social Security question, and I don't think they gave a hint on this one, so that might save a little bit of time. Oh, no hint, but I will uh, give you a real, real quick, easy hint. They live in the state you and I live in. Oh, Colorado. Now, we can we can get go. right past that one real quick. <laughs> that was an easy one. Mm-hmm. But there might have been some listener to the podcast who was not quite sure where we lived yet. Maybe a new listener. So, mm-hmm. yes, Chris and I are in the fine state of Colorado. Okay. Very short question. I am turning 65 in a couple of months. I was widowed in 2010. I would like to take my husband's Social Security first until I turn 70. I guess she means then that she's going to switch to her own. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? They make it pretty simple. Um, You just need to file an application to start the survivor benefit only. So you need to restrict your application is not technically what it's called in the system, but that's what you're doing. You're just making sure that you're claiming only the survivor benefit. And if the question comes up, you want to make it very clear that you are not filing for your own benefit. If it's your intention to wait until 70, collecting all the delayed retirement credits and then switching, this is still a valid um, strategy where a widower widower can claim the survivor benefit first and then switch to an unreduced unaffected retirement benefit later or vice versa some you know in a rare case it actually doing the opposite makes sense claiming your own first and then switching to the survivor benefit later she's talking about the the other version of that but uh, you, uh, when you, you can either go online or call them or, or make an appointment, go into the office there. And what you're wanting to do is just make sure that you're applying just for the survivor benefit that you are entitled to. They most likely have record of your, uh, the fact that you were married and the fact that uh, uh, your husband passed away previously. All those, those types of things are reported to Social Security. So most of the time they will have it in the system and have it connected to you. If not, you might have to produce some documentation showing you were married and then showing the, the death of your, your spouse. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's not as difficult as it might seem. It's uh, very common for people to do this, so they make that uh, pretty straightforward. And last I heard, you could, in fact, do this on the online portal if you chose to, or you can certainly go in or give them a call and just make sure you're starting just the survivor benefit. Perfect. That was a very quick answer. I like that. Thank you. Make up for the last one. (laughs) All righty. We're going to get into some annuity questions, folks. There's a lot of questions I have received. There's a lot of questions running through my mind, more things I want to explain, but I don't want to beat this annuity horse to death too much longer. So I'm going to... uh, Chris was wondering, we will do one more show, even though it'll play on July 10th, and then that will put annuities to rest for a while. Maybe we'll rehash them uh, later in the year and answer some more questions on them. There's there's more to retirement than just annuities, but understanding annuities uh, is key. And that's kind of this first question. There's going to be, we certainly are not going to be able to tell this person what to do, Chris. But I do think you will be able to give him a lot of insights, so not just me yapping on this one, as it relates to retirement planning. It's a very, very short question. They're pithy like me, so I like it. Um, I like his hint because I did not know it. But um, you might know it, but I doubt it. I, I, I'm going to put my money that you are not going to – and put your hands under your hiney and sit on them. I don't want to hear any Googling going on. I don't, so, I don't do that. All right, all right. Just, it's, kind just of fun. it's kind of fun to try. Okay. He is from the state 
that has the deepest lake in the country. I want to say Montana for some reason. Because um, I thought there was some strange lake there that just happened to be super deep. Is it Montana? No. The name of the lake is Crater Lake. Mm, Washington. And not right. Negative. Oregon then. Oregon. Yeah. Crater Lake in Oregon is 1,949 feet deep, mm. according to this listener. Yeah, I always get mixed up where that is. I've been there. I've been there. Oh, you I, have? Yeah. But I haven't. Uh, I always get, for some reason in my mind, I always have it stuck that it's in Washington. I think it was because I was on a, we visited on a trip to Washington, happened to go past it in Oregon um, on one of our many road trips when I was younger. But uh, gotcha. yeah, I didn't know it was that deep. Impressive. 1,949 feet. Okay. Simple question. We will not be able to answer it, but I think we can give him... Well, I can't answer it directly and tell him what to do. He says, should I do this or that? We don't know enough about his situation. Got it. But I want to give this listener and others some food for thought. Okay. So he says, I am 75. He's a, a, a male. It says, male 75, female 73. What factors should I consider... Assuming we have already made a decision to buy a single premium immediate annuity. So let me just pause right there, folks. Remember, so what he's saying is him and his wife, 75 and 73, have done the calculations and they have agreed they want a single premium immediate annuity. They want additional lifetime secure income. So they are not buying, technically they are buying a noun the annuity, but it's also going to be a verb, annuitized, because a single premium immediate annuity is an action. The insurance company is going to take their money and immediately, sometime between 30 days and 13 months, we talked about this last week, they will begin paying this couple income for the rest of their lives. That's the action. That's the verb. I'm assuming they ran some calculations and they want additional secure income to support themselves. So again, a decision was made, folks. Here's their question, Chris. Should we buy a joint annuity for $200,000 or should we each buy our own annuity with $100,000 and put a cash refund on them? The second option has higher monthly payouts for us. This is some moving pots here, as you can probably rightfully uh, figure out in your own mind, Chris. I'm going to answer, I'm going to say a few things, but then you approach this from a retirement planning perspective that what you often have to look for in a widow-widower scenario, what, what might happen but might not happen. I'm going to address some of the annuity pots here to let our listeners know what he's talking about. So when you buy a single premium immediate annuity, folks, these again are the, that's why Chris and I like them. They're simple to understand. They are the purest annuity of all. There's, it's not overburdened with a lot of the complexities of deferred annuities, especially uh, deferred uh, annuities. I hate to say the Deferred annuities with income benefit riders. I know we haven't talked about that yet. I hope to do that next week. They can get very, very complex. They can get very opaque. They can have very high fees. People buy them and they don't understand what they're buying. We get all that. But a single premium immediate annuity, pretty straightforward. In exchange for $200,000, this couple is going to get a stream of income. But they stopped and they did some calculations, folks, and they said, hey, if we each put $100,000, i am guessing, in our own annuity, take it as a single life, is what I'm guessing they're doing because he doesn't mention joint, take it as a single life, but put a cash refund on it, we get more money. And yes, listener, you get more money because you get far more protection, far less protections. Mm -hmm. What is a cash refund, folks? One of the biggest conundrums 
people have when buying an annuity. They want the lifetime stream of income because they're worried they're going to live too long. But simultaneously, they sit there and they worry they're going to die too soon. And they're going to die before getting all their money back. And they fail to realize that's the whole point of annuities. That's how annuities succeed in giving you substantially more money than you could generate on your own. Because you are going to pool your risk of death with the risk of thousands, if not tens of thousands of other annuity purchases in your annuity pool, if you will. Uh, Behind the scenes, insurance companies sell annuities in these massive pools with thousands or tens of thousands of different annuity owners inside that pool. So to worry about living too long, but simultaneously fear you're going to die too soon, and to get around that, the insurance companies created an option for you, which I think is overkill, but some people like it. They put the cash refund option on. They say, hey, if you die before getting all your money back, we, the insurance company, will pay your beneficiaries whatever is remaining. That's a cash refund. And it comes in one lump sum on a cash refund. If he purchased an installment refund, He's telling the insurance company, continue paying my beneficiary my monthly income until all my money has been returned. Cash refund is telling the insurance company, forgo the monthly payouts, just pay my beneficiary the difference between what I put in and what I took out. The reason I'm not a huge fan of this You're essentially telling the insurance company, I do not want my mortality credits to go anywhere else but back to myself. Well, you're dead, but back to my beneficiaries. Mortality credits, the money that was not returned to those who died early in the pool, is what makes annuities work, if you will, because mortality credits are shared with other people in the annuity pool. So he's saying, and I know why he's doing this, folks. They sat there and they thought, wow, we get a lot more money for our single life, and they would. And if they combine two single life annuities and they're nearly the same age, 75 and 73, the wife will get a little bit less because she's younger and a female. He'll get a little bit more because he's two years older and male. But everything is very, very close. And they're adding up the two single life payments saying, wow, we're going to get more than the joint life annuity, even though we're putting the same amount of money in. And that makes sense because the 200000 going into the joint life annuity will pay them that income amount for the rest of both their lives. And the chances of one person dying unexpectedly is far greater than the chances of two people dying unexpectedly at the same time. So it makes sense that the joint life annuity will have slightly lower or meaningfully lower, I don't know, payouts than a single life annuity. However, what he doesn't share with us, Chris, is I'm guessing because he doesn't call it out, the joint life annuity continues that same payment for the rest of both lives. He doesn't indicate that they chose joint and 50% survivor. He's saying we are going to get more with the two single life annuities, not the joint annuity. So I'm guessing he got joint with 100% to the surviving spouse. Under the other strategy, as long as they live, and if they think they're going to live a very long time, yes, they will get more money as a single life annuity, They do have that installment refund. So if one of them dies early, the other spouse will get the difference. I don't think the difference 
between what they received and what they have in remaining payments would be meaningful enough that the surviving spouse is going to be able to take it and buy an income stream with it to make up for what they would have had under the joint annuity. In other words, with their strategy at the death of the first spouse, the joint strategy will definitely be paying more. And if they die after receiving all their money, then the surviving spouse in the future is going to have an income cut. And they need to make sure, because remember, folks, in the single life with the cash refund, once they live long enough that all their money has been returned to them, the surviving spouse, who I assume is the beneficiary of each other's single life annuity, gets nothing. Under the cash refund, once you die and all your money has been returned to you, there is nothing going to the beneficiaries. In a joint payment, especially a 100% survivor, which I think this is, the full payment continues until the second spouse dies. So they will be faced with a loss of income or they run the potential of being faced with a loss of income later in life when the surviving spouse might need it unless they crunch some numbers really well. And that's where Chris comes in. Yeah, and that's the main thing I wanted to point out is they essentially are setting up with two single life annuities um, and in a situation that will eventually become the equivalent of a joint in about 50% survivor. Since this, since their ages are different and genders are different, the, the actual payment is going to be a little bit different between the two. But um, that's oftentimes not working well in the projections that I see for people's retirements. And that's because generally people have Social Security as well. And oftentimes both spouses have some social security so that at, uh, and whether they both have it or not, uh, the, if, if one spouse didn't generate their own, they're getting a spousal benefit. So the point is as a couple, the serve social security is bigger than after the first of them passes. When the first of them passes, the lower of the two benefits disappears. So they're already going to take a cut in social security, which is a significant secure income source for people at the first death. And now they're setting up a situation where their annuity income is also going to drop in half. And you might say, well, yeah, but one of them's, one of them's passed away now. They're not, they don't need resources. Yeah, but we generally see that the, um, the, the needs of a single survivor are um, oftentimes quite a bit higher than half of what a couple needed. And that's because there's a ton of expenses that it doesn't matter whether there's one of you or two of you alive. Property taxes, utilities, you know, other housing expenses, repairs, maintaining a car. You still need a car, whether there's one of you or two of you. There's just an awful lot of expenses that are there, whether there's one of you or two of you. So um, in most of the projections I see, a 50% cut in the annuity at the first death doesn't look so good. So I would make absolutely sure that you have done projections that justify that fact. Maybe there's other resources, other, you know, social security situation, other something going on that when they did their projections, it's like, oh, yeah, 50% would be fine. But then also compare the, that double single life choice to a joint with 50% survivor. That would be a more appropriate comparison rather than a what I suspect you're doing, which is a full joint and 100% uh, versus two single lives. Those are quite a bit different than apples to apples. Um, although initially, you know, on the outset, things are a little skewed because with the cash refund, you might argue, well, if they, if they die really early, there'll be some cash refund coming to the survivor and they could then embellish their, their income. That's possible, but if you, you know, I, I like to look at what are the risks, and the main risk is you live to a day past you've received back all your premium in, in uh, payments from the annuity, and you pass away, leaving your surviving spouse holding the bag, only having their own annuity, which is much smaller than the joint annuity, hoping that things work out. That's what you want to make sure doesn't happen. So that's the main thing I wanted to point out, which is, you know, kind of, you know, dovetails on exactly what you were talking about, Jim, there. It's, it's make sure you understand 
not so much while you're both alive. People focus a lot on that, which is important, right? And that's what you want to think about. But for planning down the road, one of you is going to die before the other, almost for sure. What does the survivor situation look like at that time? And that should inform your decision. Okay, one other thing I want to add to this, because mm-hmm. uh, you might be sitting there saying, well, why wouldn't I, though, want to buy a SPIA with a cash refund as opposed to not? It makes mm-hmm. no sense. The income amounts are different. If you're not willing to share your mortality credits with the pool, you don't get any mortality credits in your estimated payment that right. they're going to give you when you get your quote or your guaranteed payment once the annuity is in place. So you lock yourself in, generally speaking, to a lower income payment mm-hmm. with the cash refund. And once you get all your money back, in other words, you live too long, your fear of dying too soon didn't play out. It's not like your payments then step up to what you should have got without the cash refund. No, 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 no. You get the lower payments for the rest of your life. So again, you buy an annuity because you fear living a long time. And then you throw a cash refund in because you fear that you are going to die too soon. They almost negate each other out. And you just have to be careful. I'm not advocating against it. Many of our clients who have used annuities have put these refunds on. I have talked before about a client of ours. She purchased uh, in her 80s, early 80s, her first annuity, her first SPIA, and she did put a cash refund on it because the difference in payments wasn't too great. It was it was big enough for some reason in, in my head. Um, Six percent sticks in my head, but I think it was greater than that. But anyways, her point was she chose it and she voluntarily took less income in case she died too soon. She wanted a second annuity in her later 80s. And when I showed her the difference, this one I remember, 30%. It was a 30% less income if she took the cash refund. And I remember her looking at me and saying she wasn't going to do it. She didn't care if she passed away and her beneficiaries didn't get anything. But she did ask me, how long do I have to live before the cash refund wouldn't be a benefit to me anymore? In other words, what's how many years before I get all my money back out of this annuity? And if I'm still alive, I'm going to have a 30% lower payment for the rest of my life. And it took her to, if I remember correctly, 92. And I always remember this. She tapped her finger. I was at her house. She tapped her finger on her kitchen table first and then took the finger and pointed to me after she tapped like two or three times, pointed to me with the same finger and said, I'm going to beat that. And she died last year at 98. So she did beat it. Mm -hmm. And she recognized taking 30% less income in case she died too soon was too much of a sacrifice for her, for the living her. And she did beat it. But even if she didn't, folks, even if she did die the very next day, what's it matter? You're dead. She can't take it with her. Her children were okay. The other people in the pool win. Mm -hmm. And that's what gave her substantially more income with those dollars than she could have generated on her own. But she also had the peace. She loved the peace of mind. That's why all you people in your 50s and 60s, you Vanguard, VG, do-it-yourself investors, I get you. Trust me. We, we know 90% of our audience is you. We know what you go through. We work with people like you all the time. You're into investing. You love it. It's great. When she was in her 70s and 80s and started working with me, she wasn't into investing at all. At all. 
And when I would review her portfolio because the law says I had to every year with her, I knew it wasn't resonating. I knew it wasn't sticking in. You could see it in her eyes. But what she loved and fully understood was her Social Security and SPIAs. She had several SPIA annuities that she bought at various points in her life. She understood them. She knew them. She loved them. She knew the money was going into her account at a certain point in time. And it was just easier for this woman, especially as she lived well into her 90s. And she wasn't, she never was cognitively declined to the point where you notice her saying the same thing over and over again in the same meeting. But she was cognitively declined from the sense she didn't grasp a lot of concepts. She thought very slow. She just was in her 90s. But she understood the payments. And it was so simple for her. Okay, anyways, let's get to the next question. There's no hint from the state from this listener. This is an older annuity question that I dug up from, uh, goodness, about four or five months ago now. Okay, it says, hi, Jim. I've learned a lot from your show over the years, and I often go back to old shows as issues pop up. Then he says some other things, but I'll skip all that. He gets to questions. Do you happen to know what happens to your basis inside an IRA when buying a single premium immediate annuity with the IRA? It would be nice and simple if the basis would stay in my IRA instead of being transferred to the single premium immediate annuity to be reclaimed later. When oh, Excuse me. He says his strategy is to leave the basis in his IRA to be reclaimed when doing Roth conversions later. What he's trying to do, Chris, is separate right. the cream from his coffee. By buying a SPIA, right? Right. He said, this isn't a big deal, and it's not going to affect what I ultimately do, but it's something I want to get right. So what he's saying, folks, is he wants to buy a single premium immediate annuity. He wants the income. He's going to buy it in his IRA. Doesn't surprise me he's buying it in his IRA because most people have the vast majority of their liquid retirement assets in an IRA. And even if he does have tax diversification, in other words, he has money in an IRA, he has money in a Roth, and he has money in a brokerage account, always taxable, never taxable, maybe taxable is what we call those. Maybe he's made a decision to annuitize the IRA, which would make sense because you're going to have to take money out of it one way or another because of required minimum distributions. And a brokerage account and a Roth account are wonderful ways to pass wealth on to future generations because of the SECURE Act to get money 100% tax-free from a Roth or with a step-up in basis in a brokerage account is far more beneficial to a beneficiary. So maybe he has any number of reasons why he's going to annuitize his IRA. But inside his IRA is basis. In other words, after-tax dollars. It gets in there one way or another. And one of the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? See, my brain doesn't think as quick since my stroke, I think. But one of the, the fam- not famous things, but favorite, there we go. One of the favorite things people like to do, Chris, is somehow, magically, get rid of all of the pre-tax dollars in their IRA and leave just the after-tax dollars so they could do a big conversion of all of that to a Roth and owe no taxes because it's after-tax dollars. Ed Slot came up with the best analogy of why that is nearly impossible to do. He said, your IRA is a black cup of coffee. It's a, not a black cup, but it's a cup of black coffee. And your after-tax dollars is the cream. And even if you took one little drop of that cream, Chris, what happens to cream as soon as it gets into black coffee? It gets all mixed in there, especially when I stir it with my spoon. <laughs> yes. 
So the cream and the coffee is a wonderful analogy because it's nearly impossible to separate cream from coffee. Now, again, a scientist could say, hey, with a centrifuge and maybe a little bit of hot weather, I could separate that cream from the coffee. It's not easy, but I could do it. Well, it's not easy, but you can separate cream from coffee inside an IRA. Your after-tax dollars from your black coffee. The easiest way to do it is to take your IRA and move it, Chris. But move it where? You've got to move it into a uh, non-IRA, such as an employer-sponsored plan like a 401k. If you move that in there, the 401k is not allowed to accept after-tax dollars, cream. So it through that process, the dollars that are the black coffee will go in there, leaving the cream behind. It's really about the only way to effectively do that. And then you'll be left with just cream, just after-tax basis in the IRA. And then you can do what you were talking about before, Jim, is, is convert that to a Roth. And then in the next tax year, move that uh, 401k money back to the IRA. If that's where you ultimately want it, maybe you want to keep it in the IRA or in the 401k. I don't know, but that's what happens there. And that's a strategy we have done several times mm-hmm. with people we work with before they retire. Move it in, do the conversion, retire, transfer it out if you so desire. Mm-hmm. But moving the money to a spear is not going to separate the no. cream from the coffee. And here's why. The spear, single premium media annuity, is still going to be opened inside an IRA. The spear is the quote-unquote investment product. And it's not an investment. That's why I said quote-unquote. We say this all the time. A SPIA is an insurance policy. But I want to speak in the vernacular of IRAs. The SPIA is the investment inside an IRA. So the insurance company is just going to go out and open an IRA, essentially, move your money into it, And the single thing that they're going to buy inside that IRA would be the single premium immediate annuity. It's kind of what's happening behind the scenes. It's about as deep as into it as I want to get. So it's still going to be considered a cream and coffee situation. And here's the other thing that's going to happen. The insurance company, you can ask them, will they adjust the payments, not necessarily the payments, but the exclusion ratio for the basis in there. Would they report on the 1099 that a portion, remember from an IRA, there's really no exclusion ratio per se, folks. The exclusion ratio is if you buy a single premium immediate annuity inside a non-IRA, just on its own. It's not in an IRA. You do not have to pay taxes on your after-tax money that opened the SPIA. So the insurance company will track that for you in what's known as the exclusion ratio. We talked about that on previous shows. Inside your IRA, there's no exclusion ratio because all distributions from an IRA are taxable as income. But a portion of those dollars would be a return of this gentleman's basis. And I don't think the insurance companies are going to track that. And I don't think you're going to be able to quantify it on an 8606 yourself. So I just think it's dollars that you're going to say to heck with it. I need the lifetime income. And generally speaking, folks, cream and coffee and the analogy we're using when it's basis with an IRA it's going to be very, very light coffee. It is, there's not a lot of cream. There's not a lot of after-tax basis in most people's IRAs. So it's something you might want to talk to the insurance company about and see. Would they track that for you? Would they be willing to do that? If not, I, I would have no clue on how you could quantify each payment and show to the IRS a portion of it is basis. And I don't know if it's going to be worth it because you'll be letter audited, I think, all the time because the insurance company is going to be listing in a 1099 what the taxable distribution is and you're going to be putting less down. And I can just see the IRS's computer system questioning you on this constantly and it may not be worth trying to figure out. That's my thoughts. Do you have any thoughts? No, I'm not. I haven't 
seen enough of the inner workings with someone who tried to do this to see if any insurance companies have tried to do that. I'd love to hear from somebody if they have successfully had an insurance company um, when you had basis in your IRA and you bought a SPIA in there, if they adjusted the reporting of the income in some way to accommodate the pro rata basis in there. My gut tells me they wouldn't. The insurance industry, literally, folks, is still using paper applications. In some instances, I'm pleased to say, many programs, one of the common ones, if you're in the industry, is called Firelight, are trying to take the insurance industry, kicking and screaming, into the 21st century. So I just don't see a rather antiquated industry being that cutting edge. Their software can, can... handle it. So I'd be surprised. But yes, if anybody has ever seen that, let us know. I'd definitely be curious to see if insurance companies are tracking that. Okay. He said, a joint life SPIA, our joint life SPIA, will have a COLA of 3%. That's a cost of living adjustment. He's going to increase it at a fixed 3%. But I understand my first distribution will be 5.1%. I also understand that will satisfy the required minimum distribution rule for the IRA, even as my RMD payout fraction grows over the years. What he's saying there, folks, is he is going to have an initial payout of 5.1% from his spear. His RMDs that he has to take are less than 5.1%. At first, I think they started about 3.7. But eventually, they're going to be greater. And he's acknowledging that, but he's also saying, I understand whatever is coming out of my spear, my annuitized IRA, will be the RMD for that IRA. Before I get into his next sentence, that's what he is saying. Mm-hmm. Which is true. And that is Which true. Is that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Totally true. Then he continues, but do you see the risk of any of these future distributions not satisfying the RMD? No. No. In fact, the insurance company, excuse me, insurance company, uh, he wrote this to us uh, pre-secure two. Or at least, no, actually it was post-secure two, but he mustn't have read secure two. Secure two is doing just the opposite of what this gentleman is questioning. He's worried that in the future, the government would say, hey, the SPIA is not taking out enough now your RMD as a percentage of an account is greater than what the 5.1% is. That crossover point, I think, where you hit five is in your 80s. I think it, it is three at first, then it's like in the fours, all through your 70s, and then the fives and beyond in your right. 80s. But as you pointed out, that doesn't matter because by rule, the SPIA payment itself is designated to satisfy the RMD for that IRA by rule, no matter what the dollar amount, that SPIA will be for qualified, meaning it's in the IRA and allowed to be in there. You know, there's no worrying about percentages or divisors or anything like that. The payment is the RMD for that by rule. Correct. Chris is correct. When you have an IRA and you spiatize it, the, we kind of created that word, you are going to purchase a single premium immediate annuity with it, and you're going to annuitize the money, the verb. You're going to give up access to the lump sum of money and instead receive a stream of income. The current law says the distribution from that SPIA will be the RMD for that account at all times for the rest of your life. Don't worry about anything. Right. But secure too has created in section 204 or 207, I think it's 204, this whole group of uncertainty now because 
they're acknowledging his first RMD is going to be about 3.7. His first SPIA payment is 5.1. He's taking out more. And Congress wants to now somehow, they have not, they, they told the IRS to do this. They didn't tell them how. So the IRS is still trying to figure out how they, or more likely than not, you or the insurance company, are going to quantify what the value of the, if you didn't have the SPIA, what would your RMD be? And then compare that to what the SPIA is paying you and take the difference and use it to offset RMDs from other IRAs you might have. That's coming. But there's no guidance on how they're going to calculate it. Well, it's coming so just, in some form, most likely. We're just not clear on exactly how it's going to work. Yeah, we don't. It's supposed to start January 1st. Yeah. So the IRS is going to have to figure out pretty damn soon, another six months or so, how to calculate what the RMD of an annuitized IRA should have been it's very easy to calculate what the SPIA payment is. You know what it is. And then allow you to use the difference to offset RMDs from other IRAs. Okay, then his final question is one that a lot of people have. I know you might be prohibited from saying much about this one. And I'm not, listener. I can, I can delve into to this. But we are hoping for a long, long payout. They're hoping to live a long time, folks, and this is great. That's why they want to buy the spear. I'm going to try to keep each spear under $250,000. So that's telling me, folks, his spear payments, if he's buying one big one, is more than $250,000. Or he might be thinking of buying several smaller ones laddered throughout uh, his retirement. Also, for more than $250,000. And the reason $250,000 is key, folks, most states which back annuities or, or regulate annuities also offer protections for annuities and any insurance product if the company goes belly up but they limit it to $250,000. So that's why he hit the $250,000. I'm going to spread this out over A++ or at minimum A-plus insurance companies to reduce my risk. And I will use as many different owners as possible. You don't have to do that. First of all, you don't want to have your, your friends open up annuities for you with their names on them and then give you the money. That's going to create a whole host of issues. You can be the owner of all of those. It's not by owner that the 250000 limit is. It's by insurance company. So you can put 250000 insurance company one, two, three, and four. And all four of those could go belly up in the same year. And you would have 250000 protection amongst all four or a million dollars total. So don't have to start using multiple owners. I never heard that. Don't, don't go down that rabbit hole. Trust me. Do you have any other suggestions I should consider to reduce the risk and impact of company failure? As best I can tell, for joint life annuity, the typical state insurance fund covers $250,000. But I'm afraid to rely on my interpretation. And it also isn't clear to me how the state is going to determine the present value of an annuity in later stages of payout. And that is true, folks. They don't give you, the state will step in and take over the, a speatized annuity. They're not just going to give you a lump sum 250. Right. And they're going to base it off of current interest rates, your life expectancy, their mortality tables. It, it's, it's convoluted. 
on how they do it, and I don't understand it. And when you try reading it, it's nearly impossible to figure out. And there's generally no one you can call and ask. It's this murky bureaucracy. The best thing that we do, if we are going to put someone in a spear, is we limit ourselves to a select handful of A++ companies that I just don't see ever going out of business. It's the best we can do. You always run the risk that something could happen. And it's similar to the question we answered last week or on the Q&A show. I forget. It was last week. EDU q and I forget. We answered so many questions. With the person who was considering or questioning his company that was selling his pension backed by the federal government Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation to a private equity-owned Bermuda-based insurance company that would have no Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation protections and just protections up to 250000 in the state he lived in. He had protections prior where the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation was going to protect his entire pension. And it was being sold. And I had an issue. And I had an issue with the company. I never named the company, but I explained why. If he is limiting himself to A++ companies and even a couple of A++ ones, I get it. Things can happen. But there are some well-managed mutual companies. There are some long and historic companies, one based in New York, who I feel very comfortable with. It doesn't mean just because I feel comfortable with them, you should run out and do this and buy it. No. But you have to draw the line somewhere and say, you got to keep things simple, listener. Is owning multiple annuities with multiple insurance companies with multiple owners? All in an effort to protect you from something that might not happen if you just use a strong, storied, well-positioned company that's been around for a hundred or more years, and there's a handful of them out there. That's my thoughts, Chris. What are yours? Yeah, I think that should be your first line of defense is use highly rated, well-resourced insurance companies with proven track record. The state insurance fund, the state backing, is kind of a a last resort that's there just in case. And if you're particularly worried about it, you can do the splitting it up concept. But um, if you, you know, unless there's a distinct advantage in the payments from those multiple companies, it might be better just to go with strength to begin with. I think that minimizes, it won't eliminate the risk, of course, but it will very much minimize the risk. And then you've got some of the, you know, the backing of the, the state fund as well um, to, to a certain limits in your state. So I do think I, I agree. Leading with a quality company first is the best risk mitigation, uh, in my personal opinion. Exactly. And just, just a handful of companies that I, I would personally trust and literally can count them on less than one if you had one, you know, a finger, five, there's, there's, that's the handful. There's not many of these companies, but they are out there. Okay. Anyways, that wraps it up because I have a meeting in another four minutes. So I got to yep. get ready for that one. Perfect. Uh, thanks folks for all the questions on annuities. Uh, keep sending them in. Even if I don't get to them uh, now uh, on this annuity focused month, we will get to them later. I, I, I assure you we'll eventually get questions. We may not get them all, but mm-hmm. we'll try to get as many answered as we can. Yep. Sounds good. So you can take off. I'll wrap up here, Jim. Thanks. Perfect. So everybody, uh, as a reminder, to send in your questions, send them directly to Jim. Uh, his email address is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jimhelps.com. And while we are going to be wrapping up next week with our annuity-focused shows, uh, since it'll be the end of June, uh, we do sprinkle in annuity questions throughout. So if you don't make the cut this month, that doesn't mean we're not going to get your question until next June by any means. But um, So you can send those in. But we, uh, if you've been ho- holding your breath waiting for non-annuity-focused shows, they're right around the corner. Well, one more of these, and then we'll be into July. And uh, 
uh, it'll be kind of a more of a mixed bag, if you will, of uh, questions. So we really appreciate everybody listening and sending in questions. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 